What's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with you? Who's to blame for everything that's falling apart around us and in us? Lots of different people would give lots of different answers to all of those questions. Perhaps the big problems facing the world are economic crises. Perhaps the biggest problems facing the world, some might say, are sort of uh, ecological crises, global warming. Some people would say the biggest problem facing our world would be war or disease and death on large scales. Some people would say that the biggest problem with themselves is that they lack patience or that they lack fulfillment or that they lack intimacy with those around them. Some of those answers, it'll be really easy to put your finger on who's to blame. Big pharmaceutical companies, governments, Vladimir Putin, everyone else but me. All around us, we are surrounded by decay, destruction, death. In us, we find exactly the same things. We want to be strong, independent, fulfilled people. But life, more often than not, is falling apart. What's your problem? What's wrong with the world? Well, the Bible gives us origin stories. Origin stories of humanity as a whole. But interestingly, too, the origin story of all of the problems that we face the origin story of all of the things that are falling apart around us. We read in the Bible, of course, in the book of Genesis, how God made everything. And if you like, the pinnacle of his creation was humanity. Adam and then Eve crafted, created, cared for in his image lovingly planted in a garden, provided with everything that they could ever need to grow and to flourish like a good garden should. He even actually provided them with himself. In the beginning, God walked in this place with his people. But though God had spoken, though God had instructed, these humans began to question. These humans began to doubt. They chose actually to believe a lie and to trust themselves over and above the one who had until that point given them everything that they needed. See, God had said one thing, one prohibition had he stated, do not eat the tree of that, the fruit of that tree or else you will surely die. But the origin story of the falling apart, the problems in our world goes like this, that Satan in the snake came and sowed a different seed. So the seeds of doubt in mankind's mind, and like a hook that was well baited, they bit. God had warned, you will surely die. The snake had questioned, will you even die? But in grace, it wasn't the sort of death that comes from eating a poison meal. Death 
did come. God did come and judge. But it was a death that was immediate and slow to develop. It was a death that was born out of separation now from him. Cut off from the source of life, spiritually and physically. That was the origin story, the beginning of all things that we consider wrong in our lives. Death, because of disobedience through sin, now had its foot in the door and its impact was going to be felt in so many ways, in so many places, all over the world throughout human history. What's wrong with the world? What's your problem? There could be many answers to that question. Who's to blame? The one question the Bible provides is us. As we turn away from God, each generation making a new decision to reject God and go our own way, just like our parents, Adam and Eve, death spreads from one to another into every area and nook and cranny and crevice of our lives so that the life that we, by God's grace, still have isn't what it ought to be. It's fractured, it's failing, it's flawed, it's dying. How do we naturally respond to that origin story? Not the origin story of who we are and where we've come from, but of our self-made sufferings, of God decreeing, of humanity rebelling and death coming as a result. Well, I fancy that we try to do one of two things. We either try to downplay our own sin, or we try to upvote our obedience. Imagine the scene. Adam and Eve before God. Judgment has come. Death that was promised is being delivered. And they say to themselves and to God, come on, it's not that bad. It's just a bit of fruit after all, isn't it? What's so special about that one seed? Yeah, you've got us, we disobeyed, but you know, in the greater scheme of things, there are worse things that we could have done. We often do exactly the same, don't we? We downplay our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, the ways in which we fall short of God's perfect standard. That would be one way of trying to deal with and, and manufacture a way out of this problem that we face. To argue that our fallings, our failings, our sinfulness and selfishness aren't quite that bad. Or the other way would be upvoting our obedience and say, right, hands up, fair play, you've got us. We broke that one rule, but we're multiplying God. We're tending the land, God. We're ruling and reigning over the animals, God. We're being obedient in so many different ways, just like you told us to be. And we would do the same thing. We think that we can earn God's favour. We can pay off our debt with the good that we were ought to do. But the reality is neither of those things do anything to solve the problem. It's just digging a deeper hole for ourselves as we manufacture and create this way of living that is good in our eyes, but runs completely counter to the rule and reign of God. God is just. His judgments are correct. 
He sees more fully the impact of our denying him and defending ourselves. And so it is to mistrust him once again to suggest that his judgments on this are in any way incorrect. God is just. And when we reject him, when we rebel him, that is death with his foot in the door, ready to rule and reign in our lives. But God is more than just just. God is a loving God, a gracious God. If the wages of death, sin are death, as Paul put it, then we can just as sure know that our God is a God who gives graciously life to those who believe. In the origin story of our problems, it was in a promise that a seed, a descendant would come who would crush the head of the serpent, destroy our enemy, do what was necessary to bring us, instead of being in a place of death, back into a place of life. That's what Easter is about. That's what Good Friday is about. Not just identifying the problem in our world and in ourselves, but presenting a solution. Not God just being the judge, the just judge who rightly casts a guilty verdict across all of our lives, but the gracious one who will come to set us free from our guilt and help us to be innocent once more. In Luke chapter 23, we begin to hear some of the things that Jesus spoke even from his cross. The first thing that's recorded that Jesus spoke was this. Having come to the place of the skull, they crucified him. In between criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even as they divided his clothes up by casting lots. Do you realise, do you recognise this today? That the desire of God is not to judge. That God is not a God who takes joy in condemnation, but the desire of God, the heart of God, is to make a way. It was that way in the beginning, in the garden, when death entered in, and it continued to be that way. It continues to be that way. To find for us the forgiveness that we require. Cast aside today this view that many have of God as an angry God, an ogre sort of God, who is waiting, lying in wait, ready to pounce on a single fault. You see, this is the very heart of God that's displayed to us in the cross of Jesus. The very heart of God is that we would find forgiveness, that we would be saved. That we would not exist in this world and this life of death, but that we would gain life and life eternal in the Son. Time doesn't allow me to elaborate on this to, to any great extent, but can I commend to you today a short book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's about the heart of God for sinners and sufferers, and to summarise it is to say this, God desires that we be saved. God desires that we would find forgiveness in Jesus. Even before we ask for it or recognise our need for it, 
Here is Jesus dying in our place and praying for our forgiveness. Sometimes we can think of forgiveness as just ignoring the past, pretending and acting and living like the past never happened. But that's not true forgiveness. I don't think very often in our culture we understand the cost of forgiveness, of how to offer forgiveness to another. The price, the penalty, the debt has to be paid by oneself. And that, after forgiveness has been given, very often the scars remain. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, we read this. From noon, the high point of the sun supposedly in the, in the day, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And at about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why was it that the one who we call the light of the world was hanging in darkness? Why was it the one who, when created, spoke and light filled the darkness? Why was he now wrapped in darkness? Why was his experience more like that of Adam and Eve after the fall, after being removed from the garden in Eden than it was when they walked with him in the cool of the day? Why was it that Jesus, the eternal son, who for an eternity stretching backwards had known full fellowship and friendship and intimacy with the Father, could cry out, why have you forsaken me? In order for us to be forgiven, he who knew no sin was becoming sin for us. In our place condemned, he hung. What a saviour we have. Jesus entered in and stepped into our suffering to alleviate us from all suffering. Some people might think that that was just smoke and mirrors, though that was just wordplay, that it wasn't really Jesus um, fully entering in and bearing the weight of our guilt and our sin. In John's Gospel, we read him saying this, chapter 19, later knowing that now everything was finished so that scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. I thirst might not strike you as being particularly profound to begin with. After all, he'd been through quite an ordeal. He'd been captured and mistreated. I can't imagine that throughout his trial, he was offered food and drink and bedding and that sort of thing. No, he was beaten. He was abused. He was mocked. He was forced to carry his own cross. He had been hanging on that cross for hours. Perhaps you'd expect him to thirst. But again, it's a profound mystery to consider that this same one, this same one who had offered himself as a source, as a spring, as a stream of living water, that if others came to him and drank that they would never thirst again, now he hangs thirsty. 
None of this is smoke and mirrors. None of this is the appearance of Jesus suffering in our place so that words could be spoken or equations could be balanced. This was the very real suffering of Jesus the Christ in our place. He suffered. He endured. He bore the full brunt of our wrongdoing. Because that was the desire of God that in him, through him, we would find grace and forgiveness rather than justice and judgment. But one more question we might ask today is this. Was what Jesus did effective? It's fair enough for someone to go and to really suffer, but can it really make any difference in our lives? John carries on and says that when Jesus had received a drink to quench that thirst, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. We know, those of us familiar with our Bibles, that in the Old Testament, in the old way of doing things, there was a sense in which people could maintain a nearness with God, a sense of belonging to God through the rituals and the sacrifice conducted in the tabernacle and then later the temple. But here's the thing, those sacrifices needed to be offered daily and annually for the sins of the people. These were sacrifices that were on repeat with no end in sight. But Jesus declares with that final cry, it is finished that this lamb that was slain brought an end to all the atonement that was needed for you and for I. As the author of Hebrews puts it like this, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never really take away our sins. But when Christ had offered for all time this single sacrifice for sins, he went to sit down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by one single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Problem solved. Whatever it is that we see as a problem in our world or ourselves, here's the solution that God himself offers us. That Christ, the seed, would come, would crush and defeat all our enemies, would cleanse us from all our wrongdoing, would bear the brunt, pay the price so that we could be forgiven, that we could be perfected, that we could find life. It could be said that we, with all of the problems around us and in us, are living in a world of our own making. But here's the offer. Here's the hope, here's the joy, here's the gem in Good Friday and the Easter story that we can, by faith, by faith in Christ, live in a world of his remaking. Such is the love, such is the grace, such is the kindness and the compassion of God that he has made a way for us who have been cast out, who know only death to be brought to life. I want to finish by reading a poem. 
a poem that speaks about the promise of God all those years ago that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. If you are someone today who does not yet trust in Jesus, who hasn't acknowledged the reality of the problems, of the sufferings, of the death that exists in our world and in each and every one of us individually, then my prayer is that you will, through the things that Jesus has said, through what Jesus has done on the cross, through this simple little poem, come to understand that life can be found when we entrust ourselves to him. The poem is called The Seed. You remember the story, I hope that you do, of God who created everything, everyone, even you. When the God who spoke created, he created it good and mankind could enjoy it just as he should. But the problem with people that you'll soon come to see is that no one is good, not you, no, not even me. Who exactly is good? That's an important question. And answering that is life's most important lesson. Give me a rule and I'm sure to break it. If it looks good to my eyes, then I'm sure to take it. We see this in life as we fight and we thieve. And we see it in the beginning with God's Adam and Eve. All that I've made is given to you freely. Every fruit, every veg, it's yours, the lot, really. But you mustn't eat the fruit from that one seed. No rules but that one, the Lord God decreed. And so they enjoyed it, the world they'd been given, living with God on earth as in heaven. They ate and they drank and were never in need, living life as they ought, how the Lord God decreed. Except until one day, when a foe, not a friend, came to whisper his lies and God's laws to amend. Really? He said that? He outlawed that seed? Are you sure you heard him right, what the Lord God decreed? Did he really say that? In God can you trust? Restricting your freedoms, he treats you like dust. A God who denies you puts me at unease. Take a moment and think what the Lord God decrees. He knows you'll be like him when you eat from that tree. The fruit he's forbidden will help you to see. Knowledge of good and what's evil proceeds. That's why he stops you, the Lord God in decrees. Grasp your own destiny. Take life by the horns. Eat from that tree. Look, there's no thorns. The fruit looks so tasty and ripe from that seed. Eat it now, both of you. That's my decree. The serpent had tricked them. They bought all his lies. Following him, not God, looked best in their eyes. Eve took it and ate and then gave it to Adam and he ate and enjoyed it. But at once, a great chasm. A divide had appeared, not one you could see between Adam and God and his beautiful Eve. God came to greet them, and he noticed their deed. At once his heart sank. They'd broken his decree. Not me. Blame her. She's the one who led me astray. Not me either. The serpent's the one who made us his prey. 
He asked, if you loved us, then why you decreed what was so terribly wonderful about that seed? And now we know it's not the fruit that's the problem, it's our hearts, not the rules and our inability to follow them. Naked we stand here, ashamed rule breakers, rebellers against you who loved us and made us. They were right, of course, when they surveyed the scene. Everything, all creation, had somehow lost its sheen. God hadn't come to dwell as before. He'd come to judge them for breaking his law. The verdict was labor, hard labor at that. For the man, the kind that breaks your back. For the woman in childbirth, she'd know her sentence. And death to all people, each one of their descendants. But God wasn't happy to simply hand out that verdict. A promise came also, so sweet you should have heard it. A rescue will come to you both from her seed. A rescue. How wonderful what the Lord God decreed. It won't be pretty what he'll have to do to live and to die before making things new. But I promise to you, to the creatures that I love, we can be together again if you trust in his blood. Who is good? Not Adam, not Eve. My guess it isn't you either. I'm certain not me. Only one was good and you know him as Jesus. He came from the Father to save us, to free us. It was love in the beginning and love in the end, love that created and love that repaired. God is love, I'm sure you've heard, but that love is seen in the incarnate word. Jesus it was who spoke the creation. Jesus it was who gave life through oration. Jesus it was who banished from Eden. Jesus it was who promised to save them. Jesus it was who took on our flesh. Jesus it was who died our death. Jesus it was and Jesus it is. It's always been Jesus. Everything is his. Jesus it was that promised seed. He is what's good, just as the Lord God decreed.